If you have a Netflix account, you can find a show called The American Bible Challenge. It's a game show. It first aired a few years ago, and it was hosted by Jeff Foxworthy. And here's how the game works. You start with three teams of three people each. And Jeff Foxworthy would ask a series of Bible questions, and the team with the most correct answers advances to the next round. And when it's all said and done, the winning team could win as much as $140,000, which is given to the charity of their choice. Now, I've seen lots of other games that are similar to the American Bible Challenge. Growing up in church, we played Bible games in Sunday school and in VBS and at camp. But the object of these games is always the same. The goal is to have more Bible knowledge than everybody else. Now, the way to win, the, the, way, the way to win is just to know more stuff from the Bible. And I bring this up because I need to make an important point. According to Jesus, the win is not to have the most Bible knowledge. And don't misunderstand me, there is absolutely nothing wrong with games like this. It is a good thing to grow in your Bible knowledge. I want to encourage that. In fact, I did that a few weeks ago. I even pointed you to a website where you could break down the original languages of Scripture and you can learn the meaning of those old Greek and Hebrew words. And by the way, if you missed that, the website is called studylight.org. But for all of us who follow Jesus, there is a pitfall that we need to avoid. We don't want to just accumulate a bunch of head knowledge and then miss the true win. We don't want to lose sight of the main goal. And what is the main goal? Well, Jesus spelled it out in Matthew chapter 22. A man came to Jesus and he asked, What is the greatest or the most important commandment from God? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So you want to know what God wants you to do? You want to know how God wants you to live? This is it. This is the goal. According to Jesus, the win is to love God and love people with everything we've got. And we need to remember that we don't succeed here through our own effort. The only way to make real progress toward that goal is to begin a life-changing relationship with Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to empower you and equip you to love God and love people better. And you know, we sometimes think of these commands as kind of basic, it's pretty simple. And then we want to move on. We, we want to dig into the deep stuff. And like I said, I definitely encourage everyone to dig deep into Scripture. But we should never forget, when it comes to what Jesus has told us, we all have a lot of growing to do. We can memorize these verses from Matthew 22. Uh, we can have an intellectual understanding of these words. But if we're not living this out, we're missing the win. So that's what we're talking about today. We're in the second half of something we've called the strong challenge. 
And in the first half, we've talked about habits and practices that will put us in a place where God builds spiritual strength in us. And now, in the last few weeks of this series, we're taking the strength that God gives and we're using it to bless our community and to bless the world around us. In other words, we don't dig into Scripture for our own sake. We let, God, we let God's Word permeate our lives so that we can have a greater love for Him and for our neighbors. Now, we're going to focus on that second command from Jesus today. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we need to be very specific in the way we apply that command. We need to know who is my neighbor and what does it mean for me to love them well. The story of the Good Samaritan does a great job of answering those questions. And for us, uh, a lot of us, it's a familiar story. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And Luke sets up the story by giving us a little background. Jesus is approached by an expert in the law, and this expert wanted to test Jesus. And so he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered this guy by pointing him to the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. But this expert in the law wanted to justify himself, and so he asked, And who is my neighbor? And what's he doing with that question? He wants to define the word neighbor in a way that lets him off the hook. He's looking for a loophole. And if we're honest with ourselves, we do the same thing. When we run across people who are difficult to love, we like to make excuses. We like to rationalize the clear teaching of Jesus. And a lot of times, we don't even realize that we're doing it. But when this man asks, who is my neighbor, Jesus answers with the story of the Good Samaritan. A certain man was on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. He was beaten and robbed and left for dead. And then two religious leaders came along, and they passed this man on the road, but they walked right on by. They didn't help. Now, these two prided themselves on doing the right thing. They were good religious people, and they knew better. Jesus is obviously making a point here. It's not an excuse that you got somewhere to go, that you got a schedule to keep. These religious leaders failed the test. Finally, though, a man from Samaria did stop and help this victim. And the Samaritans were a group of people who were known for hating the Israelites. And the feeling was mutual. So for the crowd listening to Jesus, it was shocking and even offensive to find out that the Samaritan is supposed to be the hero of this story. But that's what Jesus said. The Samaritan is the one who bandaged the victim's wounds, put the man on his donkey, and took him to an inn where he'd be taken care of. The Samaritan even paid for the man's medical bills. And what is Jesus saying with this story? Well, he turns to that law expert and he asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. 
So Jesus takes that original question and he turns it around. The law expert said, who is my neighbor? What he really wanted to know is, who is not my neighbor? Who can I exclude from that commandment and still be okay? But Jesus said, that's the wrong question. The better question is, how can I be a neighbor to everyone who crosses my path? So there's no limitation here. This commandment extends to people we like as well as people we don't like. This command applies to friends and strangers and even enemies. And based on what the Samaritan did in this story, loving our neighbor means meeting the needs of people around us. No limitations, no restrictions. We just look for someone in need and then we do something about it. And we shouldn't have any trouble finding people in need because our world is in a mess right now. We're living through a difficult time. Let's look at just a couple examples. First, there is the ongoing saga of COVID-19. People are struggling with this virus in all kinds of ways. You've got the physical effects, including illness and even death. There's a guy I went to college with that recently passed away from covid But then you've also got uh, other effects. People are struggling with the the toll this virus has taken on our relationships, on our economy, on our education system, and on our mental health. I could go on and on. But COVID-19 is just the beginning, right? We've got lots of other problems, like the tension and arguments around racism. And that particular issue has deep roots in the history of our country. And the problem is still with us today. But we don't need to go through an exhaustive list of what's wrong in the U.S. and in the world. You and I both know the list is long. But with each one of these issues, you will find a person or a group of people who are a lot like that man who was beaten and robbed and lying by the side of the road. You will find someone in need, someone who needs help. And if we're going to love that person or that group of people, we need to figure out the best way to care for our neighbors. And for just a moment here, I want to say a word about the state of our country. You may be concerned about the way things are headed. You may be concerned about the upcoming election. And I'm concerned too. I love this country. And I want to see things change for the better. I want to see God's kingdom come down to our nation and really to the world on earth as it is in heaven. But what's really going to make a difference? Well, it is true that better policies and systems can help. But let's get down to the root of our problems. Do you want to see a strong commitment to biblical values in our country? Do you want to see more people valuing life from conception all the way through death? Do you want to see the decline of racism and injustice? Do you want to see marriages and families get stronger? Well, those problems won't be solved from the top down. You can't legislate people into following and obeying the greatest commandments. In the end, The ultimate solution to the problems in our nation will not be found in government or police or schools. 
The only solution that really works is the gospel of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who deals with our problems down at the heart level. Now, should we work to make our country a better place? Of course. And should we vote based on convictions that are grounded in the truth of Scripture? Absolutely. But let's be clear. Our real hope is in the gospel of Jesus. And I know some might say, yeah, yeah, I know that. Jesus is good. Prayer is good. But seriously, that only goes so far. But I have a deep conviction on this. Scripture is very clear. Our hope is not in a certain party or a certain candidate or any power or system that's based in this world. The Gospel of Matthew puts it very simply. Matthew's talking about Jesus here, and he says, and his name will be the hope of all the world. There is power in the name of Jesus. The gospel can change lives and families and communities and entire nations. That's why God calls us to take the good news about Jesus to the world around us. That's why we're called to share the gospel with everybody we can. This is a huge part of what it means to love your neighbor. It's not enough to just be nice. It's not even enough to be kind If we're going to love well, we need a strong desire, a strong burden for others to know Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can restore and heal our broken relationship with God. He's the only one who can give real joy and real peace in this life. He's the only one who can save us from an eternity in hell separated from God. And he's the only one who can give us the hope of eternal life So it boils down to this. If our lives have been transformed by Jesus, we can't love our neighbors without wanting them to know Jesus as well. Last Sunday, Dylan preached a powerful message from the book of Jonah. And he said that many of us in the church are like Jonah, sleeping down in the hull of the ship while a storm rages around us. We need to wake up to the fact that people are lost and dying in this world and in our community. And God has commissioned the church to do something about it. I was out of town last week, but I heard that sermon. And many of us were convicted by that message, including me. And I'm so thankful for that. God has given Dylan a gift to preach in a way that convicts us and stirs us up and makes us want to do something. And today, I have to ask a follow-up question. For all of us who heard that sermon, what did we do with it? How did we live differently than the week before? Dylan challenged us to pray for lost people, to pray for anyone who needs Jesus. Did we actually do that? I hope so. Because there's a danger here. We can start to to think that it's good enough to come to church and feel convicted, but then go right back to life as usual. And the problem is, if we do that week after week, we become inoculated to God's leading. And we grow less and less likely to actually get up and do something. But the reality is, I do believe that a lot of you took that challenge seriously. I believe that many of you did pray for specific people who need Jesus. And that's a great thing. But where do we go from here? Well, we know what we need to do, right? 
We need to listen to what God says in His Word, and then we need to go out and obey it. We need to love our neighbors in all kinds of ways, but the most significant thing we can do is share the gospel of Jesus. We do that by our actions. We also do it by our words. Now, today's challenge, I I don't want it to be fuzzy or vague, so we're going to get very specific and very practical. Now, I want to look at a passage from 1 Peter, and Dylan read one of these verses last week, but I want to go on and and read a few more. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 9, and this is a message to the church. Peter says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That's the spiritual battle we've been talking about. And live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's a lot of great stuff in that passage. So let's go, down, uh, let's go back and break it down a little. And the first thing I notice is some very good news. Back in verse 9, if you belong to Jesus, what does this say about you? It says that you have been chosen by God. He has singled you out. You are his special possession. You're not like that kid on the playground who was chosen last for the kickball game. God wanted you in his family. He wanted you on his team So that's really encouraging. But this passage is also challenging. Peter tells us that everyone in the church is a part of a royal priesthood. Have you ever thought of yourself as a priest? Maybe not. We had a great conversation about this in my huddle last week. A couple of guys in our huddle grew up Catholic, and one of them talked about the job description of a priest. He said a priest is supposed to represent God and speak for him. And obviously, that's an important job description. But do you see the implications in this verse? That role of priest has not been given to just a select few Christians. If you belong to Jesus, you are a part of a royal priesthood. And you've been called to represent God and speak for him. In fact, that's why we've been chosen and set apart. You've been chosen that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So the assumption here is that your life has been changed by Jesus. So you will speak and act in a way that leads others to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And that's a big responsibility, right? It's very important for followers of Jesus to represent him well. That's what we saw in verse 12. Peter said, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
So that means we can point others to Jesus by the way we live. But the flip side is also true. If we live in a way that dishonors God, we can actually drive people away from Jesus. For example, let's say you are someone who claims to be a Christian, and you invite a friend of yours to play a round of golf with you. And let's say over the course of that round, you outcuss your friend. Well, what message does that send? Your friend might be like, yeah, the only thing that's different about Christians is they have to go to church on Sunday. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't need that. Now, I'm not saying that Christians have to live a perfect life. Of course, that, that's not going to happen. And we get into big trouble if we start to act like we're better than we are or we fool ourselves into thinking that we're better than we are. But the truth is, Christians should live differently than the rest of the world. And that is one way we can lead people to Jesus, through our actions. But let's not forget, it's also about our words. It goes back to verse 9. We are a chosen people so that we can declare or speak or proclaim the praises of the one who saved us. So let's get practical here. God's command is to love your neighbor as yourself. So how exactly should we follow this command in our lives? Well, let's remember what we learned from the Good Samaritan. That story shows us that loving your neighbor is about meeting needs. And the most significant need we all have is our need for Jesus. The Good Samaritan also shows us that the word neighbor applies to anyone who crosses your path. Friends, family, strangers, anyone. But that can feel overwhelming, right? Because if there's no limit on who my neighbor is, and if everyone I meet has a lot of needs, where do I even start? And that can actually become an excuse. It becomes a cover. We can say, oh, well, I, I can't help everyone. And then we find ourselves doing far less good than what God had planned for us. But where do we start? Well, I have a suggestion. Why don't we start with our actual neighbors? I came across a great idea from a book called The Art of Neighboring. And this book challenges you to reach out to the people who live closest to you. And they give you an exercise. And speaking of feeling convicted, this exercise may do that for you. But here goes. We start with a chart. There are nine boxes here. And imagine that the center box is your house where you live. And the other boxes are the eight houses that are nearest to you. These are the eight households that God has placed closest to where you live. Now, this works if you're in a subdivision. It also works if you're in an apartment complex or even if you live in a rural area. No matter where you are, you can still picture your eight closest neighbors. But here's what you do next. You take those eight boxes and you try to fill in the three subpoints. After letter A, you write down the names of the people who live in that home. Write out their full names if you can, but just the first name's okay too. After letter B, you write out a few facts about these people. And this can't be something you would see just by driving by, like oh, they own a red car. These are facts like she works at a hospital or he likes to go deer hunting. 
And then after letter C, you write some deeper information, the kind of things you would only know when you have a real relationship. Like, what's going well for them right now? What's not going well? What do they really care about? What would they say about God? You only learn those things through the context of a relationship. So I encourage you to go through this exercise later today and then look to see how you've done. Now, I tried this. I did pretty well on letter A and okay on letter B, and I need to work on letter C. Uh, The guys who wrote that book said in their experience with different churches, about 10% of Christians can fill out the names. And about 3% can fill out line B for every home. And then less than 1% can fill out line C for each one of their neighbors. But chances are, after you complete this grid, you will have a great starting place. You can be intentional about loving your actual neighbors. But how do we go about doing that? Well, I have a suggestion of what not to do. You may not want to go around to your neighbors and knock on their door and say, hey, I think you might be going to hell, and we should talk about that. Now, it is possible that God could lead you to take that approach. That's what he did with Jonah. Uh, But in most cases, you could think about this in terms of the golden rule. Treat others in the way that you want to be treated. And think about it. If a couple guys in suits show up at your door and they try to convert you, What's your reaction to that? A lot of us are like, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. So let's figure out a better plan. And you can begin with Dylan's challenge from last week. Pray for your neighbors. In the past, we've talked about praying for your one. When you think about the people in your life who need Jesus, your one is at the top of your list. But we don't have to stop with one. And based on our chart, you probably have several households that you can pray for. But prayer is only the beginning. The second step is to just be a good neighbor. And this is not complicated. Just be friendly. If your neighbor needs help, offer to help. If one of them gets sick, uh, bring a crock pot full of soup over to their house. There are lots of ways to be a good neighbor. And it's possible that this phase could take a while, maybe years. We've said it before, you don't want to treat anyone like they're some project. You just build genuine relationships, no strings attached, and then be open to what God might do through you. I had something cool happen a few weeks ago. I do have multiple neighbors who already have a relationship with Jesus. I also have multiple neighbors who don't claim to have any relationship with Christ. And this story is about a couple in that latter category. A while back, this couple got some tough news. The wife's sister was diagnosed with a serious form of cancer. And obviously, it's pretty scary. Now, over the past year or so, uh, we've gotten to know this couple a little bit. My wife, Hannah, has been especially good about reaching out to them. But one day, they showed up at our house, and the wife said, I know that our beliefs are different than yours, but could you pray for my sister? And then right there in our driveway, we prayed together. I'm still praying for her sister, 
We check in now and then. And I'll be honest, I was surprised that they asked us to do that, but it was a reminder to me. It's important to build relationships and then be open to what God might do. So those are the first two steps. Pray for your neighbors and be a good neighbor. Then at some point, as God leads you, be ready to share the good news about Jesus. And this may feel strange or uncomfortable, uh, but it's really not. Because sooner or later, there will be an opportunity. Uh, You might take the easy step and invite that person or that family to church. You can invite them to the online service. And then make sure to follow up. After they come to a worship service or they watch online, you can ask, so what did you think? Uh, Did that bring up any questions? And like I said, inviting is easy. Anyone can do that. But we should also be ready to share Jesus more directly. Because uh, you never know when a conversation might come up that's an opportunity. Maybe uh, your neighbors are having trouble hitting a rough rough patch in their marriage. Or they're struggling with their kids. Or they're struggling with health. Or this feeling of emptiness or this longing for something they can't put their finger on. If you have a conversation like that, it's an open door, not to be pushy, but just just to share what you've found. You can say, you know what's helped me? Things really changed when I started following Jesus. You can just tell your story and see what God does from there. They might be interested, they might not, but you know, this is not on your shoulders. You can't change anybody's heart. Only God can do that. But be aware that God wants to partner with us to lead people to Jesus. That's how he's chosen to work. And our part is just to be ready and willing. That's where these strong habits are super helpful. When you've been faithful to pray and you're grounded in Scripture, you'll have something to bring to those conversations. So I want to ask you, are you prepared for that discussion? If somebody comes to you and says, I'm ready, I'm ready to follow Jesus, but I'm not sure what to do, would you know what to say next? I've heard a lot of people in church say, yeah, (laughs) I wouldn't be ready for that. But you don't have to be a minister on staff to help someone become a follower of Jesus. You can absolutely be equipped to do this. In fact, in our huddle groups this week, we're going to go over a simple plan that you can learn very quickly. You can be ready to share the gospel when the time comes. So if you're in a huddle, make sure you go over that plan together. If you're not in a huddle, we don't want you to be left out. Part of this training will be online, and you can pick up one of our huddle guides today Even if you're not in a group, you can get that at a table outside on your way out. Uh, You could also get one by emailing Amy in the office, amy at plumcreek.org. As Dylan said last week, it's time to wake up. It's time to get serious about loving our neighbors. And that includes sharing the good news about Jesus. We're living in such a weird time right now. There are problems and struggles all around us. But that's an opportunity for the church to show the love of Christ. And I'll tell you something that I'm praying for. 
I'm praying that God will make each one of us very uncomfortable with the fact that lost people are lost. And in our community, we're surrounded by people who need Jesus. So are you there right now? Do you have a burning passion to see our church make more and more disciples of Jesus? Do you lose sleep over that? If you don't, I hope you get there. I'm praying that you'll get there. I'm praying that all of us will be God's representatives to go out and let the world know that God loves them and he is for them. We've heard the command and we have a plan. So let's go be the church. Let's pray. Father, we look to you and realize that we don't see things through your eyes. You see the big picture. You see what really matters. You see how we so often get distracted from what really matters. We get so entrenched in this world when we need to see your kingdom. We need to look through the eyes of eternity. And Lord, I pray that we as a church will wake up that we will each take that role of priests to, to represent you and speak for you. And, and we'll take that role seriously. And we'll be filled with your love that gives us a burden to see as many people as possible come to know you through Jesus. I pray that will happen. In Jesus' name, amen.